Welcome to Working History, a podcast produced for the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today I'm speaking with Paul Ortiz, Associate Professor and Director of the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program at the University of Florida. Today we're discussing his most recent book, An African American and Latinx History of the United States, published by Beacon Press. Paul Ortiz, welcome to Working History. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on that. I really appreciate it. It's, it's a real honor to be able to be on your program. Oh, my pleasure. Um, so the introduction to your book, An African-American and Latinx History of the United States, is subtitled Revisioning American History. Talk a little bit about this notion of American exceptionalism and what it is um, and how it shapes much of how American history is written and understood and taught and all of those sorts of things. Right. It's, it's a big question. It's a very important question. I think at this moment in American history, more people than ever are asking or really interrogating that idea that the United States is somehow exceptional, is somehow above other nations, is somehow kind of a light to other nations. Mm-hmm. You know, to borrow some some older imagery, um, I can mention that the, the book is part of a series in Beacon Press, which is doing exactly the kind of work you're talking about, which mm-hmm. is really interrogating and challenging this idea of American exceptionalism. You know, the U.S. is the greatest country on earth. You know, the U.S. is somehow special, exceptional, and so. In other words, uh, previous titles in the series, and, and the series is called Revisioning American History. Okay. That I'm I'm writing it, and so. The previous book was Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz's book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States. Mm -hmm. And the idea is really twofold. One is, as you mentioned, challenging this idea that the U.S. is somehow different and above other nations and has managed to avoid the conflicts. And you see this, I mean, I see this every day. I mean, Mm -hmm. when I open the newspaper, um, I saw a piece today that came out of Yale, I think it was talking about you know, the exceptional nature of the U.S. Constitution and how it allowed us to avoid the conflicts other nations have dealt with. And I thought, mm-hmm. wow, you know, but what about slavery? What about the U.S. Civil War? What about, you know, centuries of oppression? And so the, the, the flip side of this is to try to talk about U.S. history from the perspective of oppressed people, the people who have been often you know, the objects of U.S. imperialism. And I think that the book is also based, so, so in many ways, there isn't much originality in terms of my conception of American exceptionalism, mm-hmm. because a lot of scholars have already taken this on. If you go back to people like William Appleman Williams, mm-hmm. you know, his critiques of U.S. imperialism, W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, Roxanne's work on in indigenous people uh, in the United States, what I'm trying to do is kind of using ethnic studies and labor studies perspectives to really recenter U.S. history as a working class history, a struggle of people against imperialism. Right. Well, and, and that's actually a, a, maybe a good place for us to, to go next. In many ways, your book as well and the individual chapters in the book internationalize U.S. history and, you know, do engage with this history of imperialism and a number of other themes. So could you talk about a couple maybe of specific examples um, from the book that illustrate how this internationalized perspective changes our understanding of key episodes or prominent figures in U.S. history? 
Right. So it, the idea behind this book is it's a new interpretation of U.S. history, you know, roughly the 1776 to present. Mm-hmm. And if you read the book, you will recognize a lot of the characters. You know, you'll see Thomas Jefferson, you know, Alexander Hamilton, although he's not singing and dancing. Right. <laughs> um, you know, you'll see, you know, John Quincy Adams, Lincoln. Um, and so on the one hand, I'm trying to just to use the kind of um, references that a lot of people are familiar with, but, but to try to tell the story from very different perspectives. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about Jefferson, when we talk about the American Revolution, the first chapter in my book is called The Haitian Revolution mm-hmm. and the Birth of Emancipatory Internationalism. And I'm making the argument that to understand the origins and the beginnings of the U.S. Republic, we really have to understand how the U.S. intersects with the, Haiti, with the Haitian Revolution, mm-hmm. the impact, the, the really the, the kind of democratic impact, if you will, of the Haitian Revolution on early slave rebellions mm-hmm. in the United States. Haiti as really a beacon of liberty, not just in the United States to oppress people, especially slaves, uh, but also to people in the central, what become the Central American republics mm-hmm. of South America, and then transitioning directly into the Mexican War of Independence. And this is where I found kind of that working class 19th century perspectives to be very important. What does U.S., you know, what do the U.S. borderlands so-called look like from the perspective of a person who's enslaved? Mm-hmm. Or from the perspective of a person fighting for their freedom from Spain in the 1810s. Mm-hmm. And when we look at it from those perspectives, suddenly, you know, U.S. history looks very, very different because mm-hmm. the border becomes a place where people are actually, you know, fleeing. You know, if you're in the United States and you're a slave, you see this incredible opening in Mexico because mm-hmm. in the outset, the Mexican War of Independence is an anti slavery war. And so if you can make it to Mexico, you can gain your, you know, your freedom. At right. the same time, if you're in the United States and you're, if you're, if you're African American, you don't see a lot of inspiration in the early 19th century. Things don't look very good coming out of Europe necessarily or coming out of Washington DC, but you see these really important liberation struggles building in places like Cuba, places like Mexico, places like Haiti. Mm-hmm. So people begin to, to, to kind of tie these, begin to kind of imagine what it would like to create an international uh, freedom struggle. Mm-hmm. And there again, I'm building on a much earlier work, you know, obviously W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, C.L.R. James, um, and, and others to try to kind of reconceptualize this history as an international narrative. Right. And how, um, for instance, does this impact your telling of um, the Civil War, right? Sort of leading up to that, you know, what many people see as this fundamental watershed moment. How does this internationalized perspective put a twist on how we see that moment? Well, I think a number of different ways. And and I should preface this by saying, I mean, the research for this book was very humbling for me. Uh Uh, in, In many cases, kind of almost humiliating because I was going back over periods and, and moments and events that I thought I really knew. Right. I, mean, I spent years reading, learning, studying, doing research on events like Reconstruction, like the Civil War, uh, like Emancipation. And but when I went back and I said, you know, let's try to apply an international lens to this, I realized how much I missed. Mm-hmm. One of the things I missed in really the making of the Civil War was 
the critique of radical abolitionists or people like Frederick Douglass, but even Mexican American abolitionists that I was able to kind of um, kind of rediscover, if you will, looking at old newspapers in California, was to realize that the Civil War from the outset was judged to be both the coming of the war was seen in an international lens by abolitionists and, and slaves themselves because U.S. is one of, if you think about U.S. history in the early 19th century, the U.S. is distinct in part because most nations in the world are moving to abolish slavery mm-hmm. or they're already opposed to slavery. Mm-hmm. Most Native American nations are opposed to slavery. There are some exceptions, but most of them are, are opposed to slavery. Mexico has abolished slavery. Haiti has abolished slavery. France and Great Britain are moving in that direction. U.S., out of all those powers, is distinct for trying to expand slavery. Mm-hmm. And I realized that this is why imperialism is so important. And in, in fact, in Frederick Douglass's critique of the coming of the Civil War, imperialism is at the centerpiece. He said that you, you, in trying to expand slavery back into Central America, back into Mexico, all you've done is you've created you know, this, this terrible conflagration. And, and Douglas actually referred to the Civil War as kind of a blowback. Mm-hmm. Kind of, you know, mm-hmm. the chicken from the roost. That is, you turn the whole hemisphere into a gigantic war zone in order to grow slavery. Um, and and what, what's happening now is it's really getting back uh, at you. When I talk to audiences, by the way, about this, I often ask them to think about some of the myths we have about the Civil War. Mm-hmm, One of them, mm-hmm. which is still very widespread despite you know, the scholarship, is the idea oh, that slavery would have just died away. Mm-hmm, um, I mm-hmm. hear that everywhere I go about all across the country, and it's just not true. And I'm able to build on the work, not necessarily in this book, but in, in my talks, to remind people how incredibly valuable slavery was right. as an economic system mm-hmm, and how mm-hmm. that value was, was really growing. On the other end, of course, France decides to invade Mexico in the middle of the U.S. Civil War mm-hmm. for very instrumental reasons. The Confederacy also, Confederate States of America are looking at a possible alliance with Great Britain and France. And so the, the war is international from its very inception. Mm-hmm. One of the most interesting chapters for me was um, the one in which you looked at this notion and this this moment of the American century, right, post-World War II, when it sort of seems to be this, you know, this moment of great, um, you know, power and hegemony for the United States um, and how you put a revisionist kind of spin on that. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and, and in some ways that also comes out of uh, working class themes. Mm-hmm. One of the, the, one of the key chapter is framed by a kind of question. Mm-hmm. And so I was looking at the, 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 the correspondence or papers centering on the struggle to institute a Fair Employment Practices Commission, you know, Fair Employment Practices, um, you know, act after World War II to try to make that kind of a permanent part of, you know, of U.S. system, mm-hmm. um, you know, establish um, a, a bureau really that would look at, um, you know, uh, educating and, and actually even advocating for, for the American working class, if you will. Uh, Dennis Chavez was, was really a key leader in that uh, struggle. And I noticed one of the things that was said was 
thanks, or, or, or we know now because of the Actus Propulsa Pact that that nations cannot pass laws designed to discriminate against any group or class of people. Mm -hmm. And I would come across this phrase, and I, I saw this phrase when it was when people were talking about the struggle for for fair, uh, affordable housing after World War II, mm -hmm. and, and there would be references to the Act of Chipotlebeck. And I said, and I thought the Act of, and I said, what is this? Because I mean, I know where Chipotlebeck is; it's outside of Mexico City. And I never read about it in anything you know, I'd read in terms of the civil rights movement, you know, United Nations, post-World War II history. And so I went back and actually discovered that there had been a major conference, an international conference in Chapultepec, Mexico, and this notion of equality between nations and equality within nations was broached by the Haitian delegation. In some oh, ways, interesting. Uh, it kind of brings it full circle, right? Exactly. Yeah. Over and over again, Beth, I, I realized that so much of what we talk about when we talk about democracy, you know, working class rights, um, uh, freedom, and those ideas come from the South, they come from the Caribbean, they come from Haiti, they come from Mexico, and, and they really, and we're really at our best when we understand the openness that people have had to those types of ideas. Now, I can tell you, though, the U.S. delegation did not look very kindly on the Haitian contribution. Because the, mm -hmm. because the Act of Chapultepec was signed, and the U.S. actually signs a treaty, it's watered down a little bit, but that idea that the equality of people within a nation and equality between nations you know, needs to be joined together was something which, which was a was a really important um, innovation mm -hmm. that people like Chavez and others used after World War II. You see it in uh, in NAACP filings for affordable housing, you know, for, for, well, actually for fair housing as well, mm -hmm. um, because again, the act requires, and, and the, the beauty of it, Beth, was that what the Haitian delegation said was that World War II was caused because of, of racial inequality. The uh -huh. Nazis taught racial inequality as the foundation of their entire doctrine, and that's how they and embarked upon the war. Mm -hmm. And if we're ever to, to create a world without war, we need to hit racism and inequality at that point. The really cool thing is a day or two later, the Mexican delegation said, we love what the Haitian delegation has, has said, but uh, they didn't say anything about sexual discrimination. We uh -huh. need to add that in there as well. Uh -huh. And and by the, at this point, the American delegation is going nuts because the Americans came to Chapultepec with the idea of instituting what they called a new Monroe Doctrine. Oh, okay. Uh -huh. Which is exactly what people in Central America and Latin America wanted, right? And the American delegation was led by a group of segregationist uh, 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 politicians who were talking about, you know, to create peace and, 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 and order, uh, the president of the U.S. needs, needs uh, unfettered uh, ability to, to wage war wherever he sees fit mm -hmm. to keep democracy alive in Latin America. And as you can imagine, you know, by 1945, people were not buying it. Right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really remarkable that the United States would even, you know, sort of, you know, not only engage in that conversation, but also... Um, ultimately sign on to, um, you know, uh, something like this. I mean, think of that trying to play out today. I think it would, you know, it would just be right. It would just be an absolute non-starter. Um, so, yeah. So, but um, yeah, so I think that's a, you know, pretty illustrative um, 
you know, example um, of how we can, you know, understand this, you know, this, this sort of moment in time. Um, what, you know, another thing that, that really struck me um, is that this book in a lot of ways is, um, you know, for historians and, you know, students of history and historians in training, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, you can you can look at you can look at this book as as kind of a primer for getting at multi-layered stories of class and race and ethnicity and really doing effective intersectional history. So I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit um, about, you know, your method and, you know, how it was that you came to your sources and, um, you know, how, you know, how your work as an organizer and director of an oral history program, you know, all inform the way that you approached um, how you, you know, how you came to this book. Yeah. Well, really great questions that I mean, and, and really on a multitude, a multitude of levels, I mean, I should say that in many ways the book does come out of the classroom, but also my experience as an organizer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I taught EC Santa Cruz for seven years. I taught out of at University of Florida for 10. A lot of students when I teach U.S. history at, at, at Santa Cruz were first-generation students from Latin America. Mm-hmm. Um, now at University of Florida, I work with a lot of students for Haitian American, Cuban American, you know, from the Caribbean and, and, and other parts of the world. And the typical explanations for U.S. history that I was taught um, just don't work for these students. So let me give you one quick example. Yeah. When we when I talk about a concept, the concept of isolationism, and my students look at me and they're really perplexed, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, well, you know, the the standard history is often said that U.S. was isolationist until you know, 1945 or 1898 or whatever, you know, my, my, the Cuban American students are like, what are you talking about? Right. This has sure. always been in Cuba, you know, from the mm-hmm. time of the American Revolution. And so if, if, if you're a student or a person from the global South, you know, if you're coming to the U.S. from Africa, or you're coming to the U.S. from Latin America, um, or the Caribbean, and you hear American scholars talking about isolationism, it just does not make any sense. Um, so... A lot of the book comes out of what I've learned in the classroom among students who say, you know, where are our people's histories in this larger narrative? You know, how do we fit in? My mm-hmm. own experience um, growing up was when, when someone mentioned the revolution in my household, they were never talking about the American Revolution. They were talking about the Mexican Revolution because that was the revolution that brought our people States. Okay. You know, and, mm-hmm. and so, but but again, my experience is only a small microcosm of millions and millions of other people um, in this country. As an organizer, it was learning really from you know the anti-apartheid movement, the farmer movement, really how change occurs and how difficult organizing is, and how if you want change for working class people, it's working class people that have to lead change. Right. And so in the book, that kind of organizing sensibility, when we get to the Great Depression and we deal, um, I try to be very clear that without, you know, coal miners, domestic workers, auto workers, people at the grassroots, um, you don't have a new deal. And sometimes my students initially, when I ask them, well, who made a new deal? If they know anything about it, they'll say, well, Franklin Roosevelt. And I'll say, Okay, let's break that down. Let's talk a little more about that. The last thing, oral history, to me, uh, the funnest part of the book, I think, was being able to go back. And I did a lot of interviews with uh, former students and organizers I'd worked with 
in the lead up to the 2006 general strike. In uh-huh. You know, we called it, it was not Mexican, you know. Uh, and talking to those organizers taught me, you know, and, and, and here I'm wearing different hats, you know, both a scholarly or historian, but also a former organizer in that movement. But again, it was a reminder that the country has changed dramatically in many ways. And that, but, but what hasn't changed is the importance of working class self-activity and the legacies of that general strike, which isn't that long ago, you know, it, it just happened literally a few years ago. And mm-hmm. but kind of the ongoing legacies of the strike and again, how important organizing was in each of each of the cities that it was um, that, you know, that it was waged in. And that's kind of how the book, that's the last chapter is really in on the strike, talking, you know, doing a little bit of comparison to earlier strikes, but really trying to figure out kind of where we are now uh, in the United States with this new, you know, kind of crisis situation that we find ourselves in. Right, right. So um, before we wrap up, I'm just curious to know what what is the big takeaway you want uh, for your readers um, from this book? Well, I think a, a number of things. You know, one you mentioned from intersectionality. Yeah. And the fact is that, you know, working class people and other people all throughout U.S. history have worked very hard to build bridges between people in this country and other countries. And that amazing, glorious history between the U.S. and Mexico, you know, the border as a place where people uh, uh, look to the border for freedom, uh, for equality, for opportunity, and the connections that people make across those borders. To me, that's one of the most important takeaways, and especially when we live in a time when it isn't just Donald Trump, but there are other national leaders who are trying to create walls, you know, mm-hmm. not just between the U.S.-Mexico border, but other other places as well. So that's one big takeaway is to remember we have options. So, yeah, we can build a wall. We can become more nationalistic, or we can pay tribute to that part of our ancestors' history, whether we see ourselves as you know, being in the lineage of working class organizers or historians, you know, the labor movement has always been international. So mm-hmm. we have a choice between nationalism and internationalism. The other thing is that historians, we have to really, um, if we don't like the resurgence of white nationalism, which are, you know, we there's no doubt that we're in that moment of white nationalism. Mm-hmm. We have to start doing a different kind of history. We have to stop being nationalists. We have to begin thinking about new narratives. And, right. You know, you know what I mean? So this book is only, again, built on earlier interpretations. And I'm hoping that other people will look at the chapters and just, you know, kind of run with some of these topics. Sure. And they'll do much more than, than I was able to do. Right. Well, that's great. So any uh, teasers for a, a new project that you're working on or are you still are you still recovering from this? One? <laughs> I, tons of events, you know, and I just got back from the University of Kansas. Two days of lectures was really cool. Uh-huh. Um, but I am working on a new book, uh, actually on settler colonialism. OK. And uh, I just signed a contract with Deacon. They want me to, to, to explore more of the connections between settler colonialism, no resistance, kind of the moment that we're in now, mm-hmm. and how we might unlearn colonialism. And, and one of the things I'm, I'm grappling with is how how colonialism continues to resonate throughout our cultures, but but how we might begin to, to unlearn it, uh, you know, again, using history as a tool. 
Okay, well, that sounds great. And I hope that, you know, when you finish that, you'll you'll come and talk with us again about that book. Um, yeah. yeah, so yeah, so Paul Ortiz, um, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on this episode of Working History. All right, thank you. That was a great honor. Thank you again. All right, my pleasure. Thanks again to Paul Ortiz for joining us today to discuss his most recent book in African-American and Latinx history of the United States. And thank you for listening to this episode of Working History, a podcast produced for the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History.